thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Gil Odendal. Uh, I like to say I'm an African by birth, American by circumstances, and a Christian by the grace of God. Uh, currently, I serve at Saddleback Church, and uh, before I took my position there, uh, I was with a group called Medical Ambassadors International and served for quite some time in Eastern Europe and also in, uh, as coordinator for Africa for them. Uh, I've blessed with a wife for 35 years, a wonderful wife who travels with me many times. I spent about six months a year on the road somewhere abroad. And uh, God blessed us with three children and four grandchildren, and one of those grandchildren are with Jesus already. Um, I, I've got family in Michigan. My daughter and her family live there. Then I have a son and his wife and his little boy. They live uh, in Central Asia, where God has called them. And I have another son who lived for a long time in Pakistan and is now working in Manila. So we kind of spread out. And then my own relatives are still in Africa, so we're literally on three continents. Uh, I'm not going to use today to try to tell you what we've done in detail, but I'm going to share with you the principles of what we've done and what undergird uh, commonly what we call the peace plan uh, in uh, through Saddleback's work. Afterwards, if you're interested, uh, I have a brochure here that can tell you everything about our healthcare initiative. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Uh, and feel free, if any of you are interested, you can pick this up and you can read there and, and see more about what's going on, how we're implementing it, and what God is doing. And uh, so you can just know the foundation for everything we're doing is holistic ministry. Uh, it is embedding the gospel and making sure that the Great Commission and Great Commandment are equally integrated into the work God has called us to do. Uh, some of you uh, have, may have heard about Pastor Rick Warren. He's my pastor too. And uh, he wrote uh, the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And when he wrote that book, uh, President Kigami in Rwanda read it, and he called him and he said, Pastor Rick, do you think a country can become purpose driven? And... Uh, you know, Rick said, that's not for me to say, that's for the church. But we're willing to mobilize the church. And that's why we're involved in Rwanda as a, like, like a, almost like a laboratory. And the principles we're pulling from there, we hope to apply uh, worldwide. Uh, so I, I think the, the first issue that uh, was important to me when, when we think of this work is, can elephants and mice dance? And if you read that Beautiful little article about it. Okay, Steve, you, you've, you've read it. Uh, the story goes something like this. It happened in Mali where the worker came and said, do you know what it's like to work with you Americans? And he said, let me tell you the story. He said, elephant came to mouse and said, mouse, can we please have a party? And Mouse says, well, and he was thinking, all the food is going to take to feed this elephant. He said, elephant said, don't worry, I'll bring all the food, I'll bring the band, you just come and we're going to have the biggest party ever. And boy, Mouse said, got nothing to lose, let's do it. And did they have a party? Music were playing, people were dancing, and elephants were perspiring, buckets of sweat. And he, and he was going around and saying, Mouse, isn't this the greatest party we ever had? Mouse! And he looked down, and then he saw he had squashed Mouse into the ground, dead. And then Kunabi, the Mali citizen, said, that's what it feels like for us to work with you Americans many times. And when I heard it the first time, it was like a dagger in my hair, my heart. Uh, and of course, what I was trying to say there is that there's so much more than just to say, I can afford to throw a party, let's do it. It's so much more to say, hey, we've got technology, let's take it. It's so much more than to say, we can do something. No, it's getting the buy-in. So at the heart and at the ground of everything we've been doing with um, the the peace plan, we said there are four things that I just want to bring out today. The first one is 
And if you forget everything I say today, remember this. Embrace the church. God wants us to embrace the church. Uh, I speak to you as a person that didn't always do that. Uh, I, I didn't grow up as a Christian. And when I became a believer, I was, uh, was in the army when I, God radically changed my life. And everything was turned upside down. And for a, long time, for a long time I was saying it's not because but in spite of the church that I became a Christian. And the more I got involved in work and especially in the global south where my roots are, I said, rather cut my arms off but don't let me try to work with the church. The politics are too bad. It's so much easier just to go ahead and do my own thing. And I had to learn that the church... It's not optional. It's God's ordained means. And we'll talk a little bit about that. The second one is we have to deal with prejudice. Uh, all of us as we sit here, we have prejudices. And that is to do with our cultural upbringing, who we are. And unless we identify that, I think we'll never come to some root reasons why we're not effective. Then the third one is not only what we train or teach, but how you train. Uh, this whole idea of let's drill a hole in people's head and pump all the information in, uh, it doesn't work. And I think uh, my own life has been steeped and immersed in the HIV pandemic. And there, more than any place else, we've learned that it is not the information that makes the difference. It's have people truly learned something. Now, uh, just in September, I was doing a focus group with some leaders, some of them from three different East Africa countries. And what came out is there was one strong agreement. They said the people in the furthest villages in our countries here in East Africa, they know what causes AIDS and they know how to prevent it. But they're not doing it. And they say what we need to do is to start addressing that one. So, and uh, I believe it's to do with how you teach and how you train. We'll talk about that. And the fourth one is your faith. How big is your God? May I submit to you that's maybe the biggest one? How big is your God? Um, it's about new wineskins. When we think of missions in the 21st century, I think part of our problem is what we've discovered through trial and error is we cannot try to use the containers of the 90s and often of the 80s and the 70s to contain what God is doing, the new wine God is doing in the 21st century. Guys, we're a global world, a global village, and I do mean that in the nicest sense of the word, and we've got to think different. You know, Jesus said, and neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Uh, so often today, I think mission efforts fail because people try to put the new wine into the old skins. And, and you see whether it's a church split, or whether it is churches just not participating, or organizations going bankrupt, it's because we, we haven't come to grips with the new things God is doing. We'll talk a little bit about that too. Uh, when we think of the new wineskins, one of the concepts which I became a believer of, and some of you may differ, maybe in question and answer time you may differ with me, is that I believe the in-betweener is the missionary of the 21st century. What do I mean by that? I don't think so much, and when I just think from North America, that we're going to see people from here live for protracted times necessary on foreign fields. But there's a continued communication uh, through the Internet, through Skype, and of course through travel. Anybody know how many people in, 19, in 2008, I read over 2009 statistics yet, but 2008 went on short-term trips from, from the U.S.? Anyone wants to guess? Come on, give me a guess. I never ask rhetorical questions. Two million. Two million. Right, John. Two million. And for 2009, it could be 2.2 um, Bob Priest told me the other day, it seems like it could be about a 10% increase, although they're still working on it. Now, they believe uh, for 2010 it will be down just because of the economy. But that's a gigantic amount of people. Uh, personally, and before I came to Saddleback where I was, I was violently opposed, literally violently opposed, to short-term missions. 
with anthropology in my background, for me, every hair stood up. And I said, I can write this whole wall full of all the mistakes short-termers have made. And I like to tell the story about on the eastern coastal plains of Kenya, how short-termers came there and worked in a Muslim village. And by the time they went home, a week after they went home, the chief's son was killed. Because one of those short-termers took it upon himself to go to the chief and says, like your son, you must begin to believe in Jesus. Totally untrained. Totally unprepared. But then God showed me something. Yes, I can fill this wall up with all the mistakes short-termers have made. But I can fill that wall and that wall up with all the mistakes long-termers have made. Colonialism, and I rest my point. Post-colonialism, I rest my point. So it's not a matter how, and when I took my current position, I told Rick, I said, Rick, I'm here because first I thought the short-term phenomena is something that's like a wild bronco. Let's shoot it and put it under his misery. But I realized it's here to stay. It's from God. I'm deeply convicted. God is raising up his church. He's finally turning spectators into participators. He's using this pent-up desire to serve Christ in ways that never before in the history of man have happened. And I said, I'm at Saddleback Church to put the saddle on the back of the short-term mission thing and to do my little part, whatever it is. Um, the other thing is a fuller understanding of what the good news is. Uh, I think, um, and uh, with this, when I ask you, do you view medical missions just as a means to use uh, so that you can proclaim the gospel or is it part of doing the gospel? How would you answer that? Hmm? It's part of it. You know, uh, I know people often say, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. And I hear that. I don't so much believe in that anymore. I believe God wants us to give a verbal testimony. Because too many times the gospel has been neglected. Too many times short-term teams will go or even mission work will go on. And I ask myself uh, when I visit the hospital, what's the difference what's going on here? What some good-meaning, ethical atheist couldn't have done. And we've got to say no, it's the distinctness of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. That's what it's really all about. And if we read Luke 4, uh, and by the way, this was Jesus' sermon. Anybody remember when he preached that one? I never ask rhetorical questions, guys. When did Jesus preach this sermon? What? In Nazareth, right? And it was right in the beginning of his ministry. He was just launching it. He was tempted by Satan. He came back. He was baptized. And on the very first time in the synagogue, this is when the scroll was given to him. This is what he preached. And as, as you go through that passage, it's, it's fascinating how God says, uh, He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he said, this is happening now. Now, um, does that mean physical or spiritual freedom? Both. Absolutely both. And I think it's like a pendulum swing. Uh, when the social gospel became real popular, about 100 years ago, the pendulum swung from the church. And what commonly is sometimes called a neglect, some will call it liberalism, some will call it a lack for the authority of scripture. The action was, well, in that case, let's get away from doing good. Let's preach the gospel. Let's concentrate on the fundamentals of the faith. And what God is doing is bringing it back because it's not the either or, it's a both and. And that's why I believe we're in the midst of what I call a reformation of missions. You're all part of it. The fact that we sit here today. Because there's an awakening that it's not only for the spiritual needs but the physical needs too. And that balance is coming back. And God is interested in the whole person. Just think of it, when Jesus sent out the twelve in Luke chapter 9, he said, go out, heal the sick, and proclaim the kingdom. And in chapter 10, he sent out 72, Luke 10, and he said, make the kingdom news known, and heal the sick. And when Jesus himself went out, Matthew 9 tells us, he went all through the country, healing all the sick, and proclaiming that the kingdom is near. It was never, never either or, it's a both and. 
And now often the good news, we don't understand the meaning, and I think more and more we grasp it. So when we work with the peace plan, in the peace plan we say there are five big giants, and I mean, it's nothing new about this, okay? Nothing original. As, and you use other terminology, we're all doing the same stuff. We say there's spiritual emptiness, people need Jesus, and therefore we have to promote reconciliation. That's the PFPs. We say there are a lack of servant leaders, a lack of selfless leadership, so you've got to equip leaders. We say poverty is huge. You've got to assist the poor appropriately. We say diseases are rampant, and therefore we have to care for the sick. And we say illiteracy is intolerable, and therefore we have to educate the next generation. Now, uh, in those five categories, you can basically put everything which is wrong on planet Earth today. And as you address them, it's not the one, it's together there's a synergy. Jesus wants to address all of it. He wants us to eat the bread of life, the Bible, but he wants people to have bread to eat too. And in the peace plan, we say those go together. And if I'm physically healthy, but I don't have a job, I don't have health yet. And if I have a job and I'm physically healthy, but I don't know Jesus, I'm not healthy yet. So it's, it's a total integration of ministry. And that's what the peace plan is about. And the good news, the word evangelicum, of course, long before the scripture uses that word, it was used in Greek language. Uh, the biblical writers simply adopted the word from their culture and their context to start using it. You know what the evangelicum, the Greek word, meant? If I had a child born to me and I had money, I would take a scroll and I would write a note out and send it to the community to proclaim the good news that I have a son or I have a daughter. The good news. And it was called, I sent an evangelicum. If one of my children were to get married and I have to announce that wedding and the new names and I had the money, I wrote the scroll. And I sent out the good news to the community. But here's the big one. You know, they were city-states. And they were leaders and kings in those cities. And sometimes they were besieged. And when a foreign power besieged the city, the king doing the siege would usually say, okay, write a letter and send it to them. And that letter will say two things. Number one, unconditional surrender. From now on, you belong to us. And if you do that, here's the good news. We will protect you. We will provide for you. But you're one of us now. That's option one. Option two, we come in and we kill all of you. You will die. And that was written up and sent to the king in the home city. And that document was called Evangelical. The good news. And isn't that what Jesus came to do for us to say? We're all condemned. We will die. But here's the good news. If you unconditionally surrender to the man of Nazareth, or that one who died on a cross, you don't have to die anymore. Choice is yours. You guys get it? That's the good news. You and I can go out and give the good news to people that God is interested in their body, soul, and spirit. That's what the Great Commission and the Great Commandment specifically is all about. Love your Lord, your God, with what? Heart, soul, and body. And isn't it true what Jesus said also, I was hungry and you preached to me. I was naked and you formed a committee to discuss this. <laughs> I was in prison and you prayed that I would be released from prison. No. There was physical acts done. And if you really go into the hermeneutics of that passage, you'll see God says, one, I'm going to judge people based on these things, whether you've done it or haven't done it. So the good news, what we say, the underlying principle for us, it's, it's everything. And that is what the church has to do. You're part of reformation of missions. In the past, people, this, by the way, is in the eastern Congo. That hospital is about 12 years old when I took those photos. You can see there's still even a bed in it. Good-willing, well-meaning people went there and they poured buckets of money in. And today there's nothing left. It wasn't owned by the church. It wasn't owned by a community even. 
So we say the first thing is you have to embrace the church. And often communities have said this, even uh, missionaries, and I was one of them, no, I can't be bothered with any new ideas. We've got a battle to fight. Don't tell me about a new way to do it. I'm so involved in what I'm doing. I cannot afford to think of trying to do things of a different way. And we can see there's obviously a great solution. Uh, and for me, that is the church. And the reason I say we have to embrace what is this? Embrace the church um, is because the church has the largest participation. Think of it. You can go to places in the world, there's not a Coca-Cola to be bought. But guess what? There's some believers. We just had a team that came back from, I mean, I've got to look at a map to find the place there, somewhere in the South Pacific, a little island. There was nothing, but they found a group of believers. Maybe not strong churches as we think of churches, but the presence of Christ is there. And where it's not present, from there they can go to the places where the people still have to be engaged. Uh, it's the widest distribution. It's the simplest administration. It's, it's not brain science to think of it. Uh, it's the fastest proliferation. Yes, we, we've, there's only one organism that's growing faster than the spread of the Muslim faith, for instance. What's that? It's the church. And often we, we get blinded because our, uh, we're so narrowed in our view about what the church is. We think North America. We think Europe. Folks, this is not where the action is. You know, the, the action is out there in Asia. It's out in Africa. It's out in Latin America, that's where the body is growing. Uh, it's the highest motivation. What we found with our, our work, um, I had a, a, people from Malaria No More came to see me and they said, you know, we really love what you guys are doing. They couldn't believe, at that point we had about 1,800 community health evangelists trained, uh, visiting seven to eight homes, enthusiastic, they could see physical change, and after two years there, at that point, there was only about a 6% attrition rate, and some of those people moved. Now, you know when you work with volunteers whom you don't pay, your attrition rate of community health workers is anywhere between 60 and 70%, because many times people come, and then they say, we give up, because nobody's paying us, we're out of here, we, we expected funds. And so they were very impressed and say, however you train them, can we get what you're doing? Just one thing, can you take this Jesus talk out of it? And, and we told them, if we do that, you, take, you emasculate it, because that's the motivation. These people are doing what they're doing, not because somebody's paying them, because they know one day they're going to hear from Jesus himself, well done, my faithful servant. It's because that is what's motivating them to do what they're doing. And by the way, for you and me too, if we look at any other place for motivation, we're going to run out of steam. It, it just won't work. Uh, it's the longest continuation. You know, countries come and go. Empires come and go. Organizations come and go. United Nations is going to be no more in the future. The United States will probably be no more in the future. But the church has been there for 2,000 years. And it will be there till Jesus come again. And then it has the strongest authorization. Because God says... This is my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will use my church. So when I talk about it, it's more than just semantics. Because people say, well, I work with the church, or my ministry is based in the church. And what I want to say is, we do not work with the church, but we work through the church. There's a difference. It's not semantics. If I work with the church, often I go to a town or to a place and say, okay, can I work with you? Which church will say no? But if you work through the church, it means they've taken ownership, it's their program, and they're going forth. And what we found, it takes much more time. But if pastors are envisioned, if lay leaders are envisioned and mobilized, then all of a sudden it becomes theirs and they are going forward with it. It's church-initiated, not church-based. And then it's not with one church only, but with all the churches. When I say church-initiated, uh, take for instance, and don't understand me wrong, I'm a person deeply committed to those brothers and sisters and friends who are living with a virus, the HIV virus. 
But from about 1999 to 2004, it was the flavor of the month. And then it slowly began to take down. Now what few people want to, to know is that the infection rates are still rising. It hasn't stopped. But all of a sudden there's another flavor of the month. And I'm afraid that the moment the one is orphans and vulnerable children. We have large programs for them too. But now the temptation is, I go in and I say, I want to, I've got X amount of money. I mean, that is something you can raise money for like this. You almost have to spit on people not to give you money for orphans and, and vulnerable children. And then once you have this money and you can give it out, you go to a church and say, okay, can I do my orphan ministry through you? And if they say, yes, of course, and especially if you say, I will hire two or three of you people to help me, hey, I've got a work going. And three years from today I'm, today, I'm tired, I pack my bags, I'm out of there, and what happened with that ministry? It usually dies. But now, if it's on the grassroots up, and one of my good friends from Ethiopia is here, because uh, he's ministering, you can really talk with him afterwards, uh, winning souls for Jesus, for Christ. They started from the grassroots up with community, the church involvement. And because it's going strong, then others came by and said, wow, we want to do it. We can help you. This is the difference between basing my program in a place or am I going to take the time to work with a church and say, can I envision them to see how important it is what they do? Make sense? And then they say, we want to do this. Whether you come or not, we don't care. Jesus called us to do this and we're going to do it and if you can come and help us, all the better. But nevertheless, we're going to take care of orphans and widows. Now, they've been empowered. They've been envisioned. And they're taking the ownership. An example why I believe in the church. This is part of the western province in Rwanda. Kabui is the center. There are three hospitals there. In that same area, we have 19 clinics. But guess what? Those are the churches in that same area. Now, if you've got to think about how do I reach people there where there's such an affluence of churches, doesn't it make sense that the church can be embraced? Instead of people having to walk for two days to get to a hospital, and we know that most of that hospital serves about 8% of the needs, 12% are served by a clinic, and 80% of all health needs can be met right at the village level, that if those people can be motivated and empowered and mobilized, you've got something going on. So the church is the option. And some of you might have seen this before. When I say one of the things a church can do is what we concentrate on is, for instance, adherence specialists. We've trained some of our community peace trainers, our workers, to become uh, adherent specialists to help those folks who are on medication. That man, uh, of course, has HIV and his mother there with him. Now, that's the same person nine months later on medication. Wow. Now, what, what do you see in that photo? What? Happiness? What else? Healthy, a future, hope, there's a child even. Uh, you talk about taking care of as part and parcel of working with orphans. And guess what? It's lay people, church members that says, I'm willing to come to grips with my own biases, my own stigma, my own discriminatory viewpoints. And we will live with people. We will give care. And when you see that, I say, praise God for the church. But we have to deal with our um, cultural prejudices. What do you see there? Cricket. cricket, okay. And what is that cricket? We say it's a pest, right? Let's squash that baby. And China? It's a pet. But hey, go to Thailand and what? You pay big money for it. <laughs> and we are often so ill-equipped to do what we have to do. It's like square heads going to a round-headed place. 
And that's why at what we've done with our program, we've got a six-month preparation period, we say, before people go on a trip, unless you commit to this, we cannot stop anybody from buying a ticket and go somewhere. But if you want to go in the name of peace, with a peace plan, you have to go through the training. Because when you get there, you are going to enter a community. And in that community, some people in the host culture, some learn to fit in and some don't. And the more we can do before the time to help them to fit in, the better. And some people are just square heads. Now, the only thing worse than a square head, and forgive me for my biasness here, is that person that tried to be a round head in a, if he's not a round head. I, I believe you, you break down all authenticity because you can never, ever become something else. Many of you have a real funny accent for me, but you know, I learned to live with you. I've never, this is who I am, you know, and sometimes uh, when I speak and I have lessons on the road to health, people say, why do you want to take people to hell, the road to hell? I say, no, it's the road to health. So, yeah, you've you got to deal with your pronunciation and stuff, but what I mean is you are who you are, and it's okay, embrace that. Uh, part of the big things about cultural adjustment is to be comfortable with yourself and realize I can never be like other people, but I can learn to respect and deal with my own prejudices because that is the big thing. And when you come to the time, I don't have time to go into this one, uh, you know, as you go through frustrations, you, you will have a choice. You'll either observe, listen, and re get a report and understanding going, or else you'll criticize, withdraw, and it's alienation and isolation. Uh, it's time to elect a new world leader and your vote counts. Here are some facts about the three candidates, okay? The first candidate associated with crooked politicians, consultant astrologist, he has two mistresses. He's a chain smoker and drinks eight to ten martinis a day, okay? Candidate number two has been kicked off out of office twice, he sleeps till noon, uses opium in college, drinks a quart of whiskey every evening. And a third candidate is a decorated warrior. Oh, he's a vegetarian, he doesn't smoke, he drinks an occasional beer, and he's known for his religious conviction. Okay, you think about it, okay? And you make your choice on that. When we think of prejudice attitude, now I say this because the, the longer I've been working cross-culturally, and the longer I've been had God's burden on my heart for those who are less privileged and, and to see how we can minister to them, the more I realize that my attitude toward them rubs off. If we don't believe they're created in the image of God, they know it. They know if you don't see them. And our attitudes refer to the way we think or we set ways of behavior. It also receives to how we perceive, see others in terms of our personal thinking. And friends, this is very difficult to be honest here. You see, for me, it's about what I call post-colonialism. -post that, that's part of the problem we have today. And the prejudice that we've built in on both sides of the ocean. And uh, forgive me, I'm still not, I'm busy writing on this. I haven't formulated it completely, but here's basically my thinking on this. In colonial times, it was clearly oppressor. It was a w wicked time. I grew up in South Africa, apartheid South Africa. I know the worst of it, or some of the worst of it. Then came post-colonial. And in post-colonial time, it was the second generation. What I like to say, it's people, the children who have come and say, okay, our parents did a terrible thing. And we're so sorry. And the people have been oppressed. Yes, that's true. Our parents were terribly treated. I can remember as a schoolboy of 12, 13, riding in a bus and seeing people throw Coke bottles out on people of color. And everybody laughed about it. I was thinking, that person with a bloody head coming home, he has a son, and his son has grown up now. But what have happened is this. We, and I talk about the lighter us, those who have been oppressors, whose ancestors have been oppressors, we begin to operate from a guilt complex. And we're dishonest. And we're willing to set up with everything and we're not honest. 
and those who have been the recipients of cruel behavior developed a spirit of entitlement. You owe me. Don't ask me questions. Don't talk about accountability. Remember what you've done. What I'm submitting with post-colonialism is there's a prejudice on both sides. And that prejudice has to be broken down and we have to be able to come together and say, this is who we are. I admit my prejudice, but we are the body of Christ and we take it to a next level. And the hand cannot tell the foot, I don't need you. There are today some practices that are culturally appropriate, politically correct, but I submit to you, biblically unsustainable. There's a passion for a country. And if God called you, he doesn't look at the color of your skin or the ethnicity. He says, I've called you to be there. That's, that's basically in a nutshell. It's to say, through Saddleback, we're trying to address this. We call it, I call it going from the, boardroom ta- from the kitchen table to the boardroom table. Around the kitchen table, we drink a lot of tea, we, we talk, we have association, and then boardroom table, we're willing to make tough decisions. And to really make honest decisions there, it takes time to get there. And the only way we can get there is through the communion table. Um, where does attitude come from? It develops over time. It relates to our upbringing. It's based on principles and values. Uh, our prejudices are huge, a judgment or opinion formed before having all the facts. Sometimes we're indoctrinated. Now, I'm asking you this. How do you view the people you work with? Think for a minute. If you've, anybody of you have been on a trip to a, a different country, raise your hand. Okay. Uh, we're all there. And we have views of each other. What I found out is that there's prejudices on both sides. Because we've got preconceived ideas, and the problem is this, we don't even know we have them. What we've discovered, the more I'm willing to be honest with my own prejudices, the better I can function. When I was a boy of eight years old, I'll never forget where we lived, there was a road coming down a a hill. And in those beautiful African storms, when it rains, those thunderstorms, you know, one moment it's there, the next moment it's black, and it pours down, and then it all clears up blue skies again, and you smell the rain and the dirt. And that water comes down like a river down that road. And I used to go as an eight-year-old boy to stand there and look at that water. And one day as I was standing there, a person of color came with a bicycle. In front of the bicycle, he had some food in a box. And he was trying to get through this water, but the water was too strong. The bicycle fell, his food washed away. And I see this tall African cry. I'm eight, nine years old. What do I do? I told him, come to my house. Took him to the kitchen, told one of the servants, fill up the box with food. Fold it up. And he came to me and he took his hand like this and he said, donkey me bossy. Thank you, little Lord. You know what I did? Go, it's okay. Why did I do that? Why do you think I did it, Jack? Love and care. Huh? Love and care. Okay, but why don't I shake his hand? You'd seen other people not do it. I saw other people not doing it. I had beliefs. I had beliefs that even if a cup or a glass had been used by a person of color in our house, it never got into the household again. It was used in the kitchen. Now, I grew up. I didn't like apartheid. But I said, well, I mean, it gives hospitals to people. It gives food to people. And then something happened. I became a Christian. I was saved. Everything changed for me at that time. And I said, no, apartheid is not okay. Apartheid is a wicked system. And my wife and I worked on working against it. But it was about six years later. I was already out of the country. Two years out of the country. When I had that epiphany, 
never forget, I woke up and I just realized, Gil, apartheid is not a wicked system. Apartheid is sin. And it's generational sin. And it has to be confessed of, dealt with, and put out. And I went through a time of soul cleansing. And I thank God that His grace is sufficient. He could clear me. He filled me with love. But the bottom line was, I had this hidden prejudice that I never could put my hands on by myself. And it took an act of God to bring it out in me. And from there I could begin to grow. And by the way, I, I wondered many times, did my sins rub off of my children? You know, is this now going to be generational for them too? And I'll never forget when my daughter went to her senior prom. And um, her best friend was an African-American. And today, like I said, my third grandson is an African-American Asian. So God's power to heal is complete. But I guess the question asked you today is what prejudices are you living with? When you look at that physician in Kenya, do you think back and deep in your heart, he can never cut it. When you look at that person of color in India and say, there is just going to be some dishonesty involved automatically. Or are you willing to begin to view people created in the image of God? True collaboration can never take place. True work can never take place. True transformation will never take place unless we can deal with these prejudices. And, and we all have beliefs. I think this morning in the, in the plenary session we were challenged on some of our beliefs. Uh, it was pretty tough stuff we heard there. Let's go on here. Remember the question about the candidates? Let's vote. The first one, who voted for him? Maybe, okay, if you voted, you voted for Franklin Roosevelt. He was the U.S. president. Who voted for this opium-smoking college kid who drank all that whiskey still later in life? If you did, you voted for Winston Churchill. Now, who voted for this decorated military hero who's known for his religious convictions? If you did... Our prejudices, so often, they're so deeply ingrained, we, we, we make judgments without really seeing the whole picture. Uh, I, I, we don't have time for this. The th third point I said is how adults learn. Just remember this. It's not only what I teach, but how I train. And I kind of feel uh, guilty saying that where I've just been blaring it, it out all the time here, you know. Uh, but it's through interaction and um, what we call, and, and John Payne is here too, he's the president and CEO of LifeWind, and if you want to have some of that training, they can present it to you too. But it's learner-centered, problem-posing, self-discovery, action-oriented. People have to discover for themselves, maybe a little bit on this, what we've done with a Prejudice. Maybe you discovered something in yourself that you have prejudices because you prejudge those candidates. That's the key. And, and the more we, uh, we found the interactive way we deal with people, the more we sensed it's, it's working. And then, as you work with, with that too, it is to be careful for us. We say we don't want to deal with bad fruit. For instance, dirty kids on the street, living on the streets, that's a fruit of something. And you've got to go down and say, okay, what is the root causes? HIV AIDS multiplying, that's the fruit. What are the root causes? Dealing with that. It's ingrained in all our training, all our programs, dealing with root causes, not with uh, the, um, just with the fruit. In the last few minutes we have together, the fourth one. Can you remember the three I've talked about? The first one is embrace the church. The second one is deal with your prejudices. The third one is how we learn. And the fourth one is, my question is, how big is your God? Because what you believe about God will determine the extent of your ministry. 
think of that story of the paralytic. Uh, in Luke 5, Jesus tells us that story. What happened in that story? Somebody can quickly give us a capsule of that. Friends let him down from the roof, right? What else do we know of that story? Popcorn answers, guys. Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. They were carrying him to him. They were carrying him there. Have you ever thought what the mindset of those four friends must have been? Why did they carry him there? Why did they do that? Huh? They had faith that Jesus could do it. And I submit to you, often we don't bring people to Christ, we don't try things, because deep down, we don't believe God can change them. Who is, how big is your God? Something else, why did they bring him? Because they loved him, and they wanted him healed. They loved him, yes, and they wanted him healed. And how did they know he needed healing? Because they lived with him. They lived with him, they saw him. Their hearts were broken for him. Often, when our hearts are broken for a huge problem, we don't make the connection that God can fix it. It's too big a problem. I challenge you to think, what problems are you saying today are too big? In 2002, I was in a, in a, a extension township outside Soweto in a corrugated iron room with a lady who probably didn't leave, live more than another week or ten days because of AIDS. And I have a photo of myself standing in front of that house. Because at that point I, I came to the conclusion I was so depressed because I said, this AIDS thing is too big. There's no hope. ARVs wasn't even on the scene that much yet. And I'll never forget as God spoke to me and said, Gil, am I, is this problem bigger than I? Are we willing to bring the power of the gospel to people? Are we sometimes cutting corners and say, well, people won't listen anyway. Jesus can't change them. How big is your God? You know, we talk about the Lion of Judah. As we conclude, for some people, Jesus is like that lion. And we do our mission work, yes, and Jesus is that little, like a comfort blanket we hold on from time to time. And it gives comfort, it's nice and cuddly, oh, and he's so nice to have, gentle little Jesus with me. And that's the Jesus I serve. And then I do my profession. And I go into whether it's doing a surgery, pulling a tooth, <laughs> training people in community health, whatever the case may be. But if I feel depressed, I can take Jesus and cuddle him. For other people... Jesus is a circus lion. Give us another trick every time. Another miracle. Do something. I mean, get the crowds going, right? And that's their Jesus. That's their God. And it's like a show. For others, Jesus was a great lion. But today he's in a zoo. This one is in a zoo. And by the way, unless we give him hamburger to eat, he cannot survive. So we gladly promote the religion of Jesus because he's a helpless, toothless lion. But oh, he's alive? Yes, I believe in him. He's there. For other people, it's even more sad. This one was in a, in a museum, stuffed. There's those people who say he's dead, but we, we still want to let our children listen to him. You know, put earphones on. Little Sunday school, learn about the good things this man Jesus did one day. He's dead now, but that's what it would look like, used to be. And I ask, who is your Jesus today? How big is your God? Because you see, the real lion of Judah still roars. He's still alive. He still roams. And as we have that classic statement He's not safe, but he's good. And he wants to change the world. As we do the peace plan, and people say, you guys are crazy. Poverty, disease, 
It will never end. Yes, I know, but can we make a difference? Absolutely. The gospel to people who have never heard it? Yes. My son's wife is a person of Muslim background. And the powerful work the Holy Spirit did in her life as she came to know Christ and serve Him. And now, boy, she's a fiery little preacher. Small in both, but great in heart. God can do it. He's not safe. You know, um, this morning he basically said something I was saying too. Jesus followed three steps with his disciples. And with the peace plan we say those are the three steps we follow. In the beginning Jesus said, come and see. He invited Andrew to take Paul, uh, Peter, come and see. And Jesus says, come and see. That's how we call us. And then secondly, he said, come and follow. And finally, he says, come and die. The lion of Judah, how big is your God? Is he a roaring lion? Is he one you cradle on your shoulder? Uh, these principles, and the church of Jesus Christ is probably the most powerful, powerful uh, tool today. God still wants to change the world. He wants to use us. And he wants to use us as we integrate the physical and the spiritual. Uh, you can reach me at Saddleback, Gilo, G-I-L-O, at Saddleback.com. Feel free to pick some of this material up if you want to. And if you have any questions, I'll be delighted to talk further with you. Thank you. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we ask today, Lord God, that you will give us a fresh appreciation for your church. Not only as an institution, but as your God-ordained means to bless the world and to grow to the ends of the earth. And Father, I pray that you will convict us of our prejudices, set us free from that which binds us to view people as you view them and situations as you want to do it. Thank you that you can do everything. Help us not only to be talkers of your word, but really educate in ways that will change people's lives. And Lord God, help us to see you for who you really are. Thank you that you are still roaring and you are coming back one day. May we all hear you that day say, well done, faithful servant in Jesus' name.